Hey everybody, this is episode number three of the Rational Right Brain mini-series, which is a precursor to the Ikigai Stories podcast. If you are scratching your head right now wondering what does all of that mean, then please track down uh, the intro episode of the Ikigai Stories podcast, which will explain uh, what all that means. Basically, there is a pre-ikigai and a post-ikigai. And in the pre-ikigai, there were three interviews conducted, and this is the uh, third of three. The guest on this podcast is Corey Custer, the director of Compassion at Brighton Jones. And I cannot say enough good things about Corey. Uh, Corey has been a mentor. He has been an advocate. He's been a friend. He's been a sounding board. He has had a tremendous influence on my journey, and uh, I just I, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, in this episode, he talks about uh, the reaction that he gets from people when he says that he's the director of compassion, uh, which I believe he is the only director of compassion in the world. Maybe that the world's starting to catch up, but at one point he had done some research and he was the only director of compassion. Uh, he also talks about how he, what he does as a director of compassion at Brighton Jones. So in running the MESI program, M-E-S-I, which is an acronym for Mindfulness-Based Emotional and Social Intelligence Program for uh, associates and clients at Brighton Jones, uh, and the incredible work that he's doing there. And then um, he, he shares some, some great anecdotes. There's one story in particular that sticks out where he shares uh, how he withheld the title Director of Compassion from his wife uh, for three weeks. And she actually found the title on an email and called him out. Uh, it's a great story. So there's a little bit of a cliffhanger for you. Um, Corey has great depth, incredible knowledge, incredible wisdom, um, and is just a good guy, good person all around. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I surely enjoy just uh, hanging with Corey and learning from him. And again, this is the last installment of the Rational Right Brain podcast conversation. From this point moving forward, everything will be called the Ikigai Stories, which kicks off with episode number one uh, with Rich Sasaki from iKakua. So enjoy this conversation with Corey and uh, have a great day. So I'd like to just start off and get an understanding of you and your role as the Director of Compassion at Brighton Jones. So what do you do as the Director of Compassion? Well, yeah, as you can imagine, I get this question a lot. Um, I usually get the question, when I tell people I'm the Director of Compassion, usually the first question is, um, is that for real? Is that your full-time job? And the answer is yes. Um, but the second question is what you asked, which is like, what exactly does that mean? Um, there's lots of things I do, but the, the vast, vast majority of my time is spent running our MESI program. MESI is an acronym. It stands for Mindfulness-Based Emotional and Social Intelligence, M-E-S-I. And so... Um, there's a lot that goes into that program, but the way I, I think I would summarize it in the moment is that 
Um, there's all sorts of skills that mindfulness develops that can be classified under the heading of emotional and social intelligence. And if you imagine that all these skills are in a pyramid, then compassion sits at the very top of this pyramid and I think is, I would argue, the most important of the skill, of the skills. And so therefore, um, we created this role director of compassion. And so that's driving a bunch of skills, not just compassion, but they culminate in compassion. So how does that, um, so tell me more about how that manifests itself in working with the associates at Brighton Jones. Yeah, so um, how does it manifest itself? Well, the program is, I'll start at the very highest level. So at Brighton Jones, our mission is to help our clients, colleagues, and community members live a richer life. And this may be even a more succinct answer to your prior question. Uh, but if that's our mission statement, helping people live a richer life, um, another way you could say that is helping people be happier. And we think the Dalai Lama got it right when he said, if you want other people to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So our little simple equation is richer life equals happiness, compassion equals happiness, therefore compassion equals richer life. Um, but if you also break apart our mission statement, we've got clients, colleagues, and community members. And for, for our colleagues, which are the associates of Brighton Jones, um, I simply state it as our mission is to help everyone at Brighton Jones become better people. So I want people to feel like they're becoming better human beings by virtue of showing up at Brighton Jones at work every day. So that's, that's my measure, that's the, the yardstick. If, if, if I feel like I'm becoming a better human being, a better person, and, my col and I'm getting um, evidence, anecdotal or otherwise, that my colleagues feel like they're becoming better human beings by virtue of working at Brighton Jones, then mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I just consider it messy to be human being training, better human training. So is there a is there a, is there an intentional connectivity between them being better people and them being better financial professionals or better relationship managers or better financial advisors? How are we going to define the industry term? Absolutely, I think that um, I think this is something that John Jones um, and Charles Brighton, our co-founders and co-CEO CEOs, knew or know instinctively that that like most of being a trusted advisor is human to human connection and so you could call that emotional and social intelligence um, but it's about having real connection with your clients as as much as the there's the tech there's a whole technical side of things of course which you have to be awesome at um, but then there's the whole human element which is um, important and I think advisors know and understand and the real question in my mind is not do the soft skills matter the real question in my mind is how would you get better at those soft skills how would you get better at empathy how would you get better at kindness how would you get better at self-awareness so emotional self-regulation these are these are terms this notion of social emotional intelligence has been in our kind of 
collective lexicon now for almost 30 years, but I think what's been missing is how do we train in it? So I don't think anyone's going to doubt these skills are important, but I think very few people have a regimented or disciplined, disciplined way to get better every day and train at these skills. So the MESSI program, can you, can you talk more about the MESSI program? Is it a, um, is it a, can you just talk more about the MESSI yeah, program? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, so it's mindfulness-based. So uh, in, you know, in there is kind of the, the clue to how we would train these skills. We think mindfulness and mindfulness meditation more specifically um, drives the components of emotional and social intelligence which again broadly we define as self-awareness, emotional self-regulation or call it self-mastery or self-management, uh, awareness of others emotions which we call empathy and then um, this whole other slew of like pro-social behaviors um, that you could call relationship management or communication but um, really on the, they're on the foundation of kindness and compassion. So those are the components of emotional and social intelligence. We use mindfulness, meditation, training, and practices to drive those skills. And if people get um, weirded out or, or you know, they, they, they bristle at the term meditation, because there's a lot of baggage associated with that term, just call it mental training, mind, you know, mind training. Um, you know, this is if 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 I were a sports coach here talking about my team, and I told you we did you know mind training, if we did visualization and other mental training techniques with our athletes, you wouldn't think twice about it. But if I tell people I teach meditation at my workplace, people are like, "Whoa, that's strange." But it's the same. It's the same concept. Using visualization, you're using mental training techniques in order to get intentionally better at certain skills. It's really no more complicated than that. Yeah, that's a great great analogy. I mean, Phil Jackson comes to mind immediately, right? He was known as this meditation Zen uh, guru with the Lakers and Kobe Bryant. And, you know, when you, when you capture that idea in that, when you, in that, in that industry or that um, setting, it's very safe, it's very comfortable, but as soon as it starts to move out of sports and probably a handful of other concepts, it gets scary. Yeah. It's funny you bring up basketball because I want to tie that back to compassion a little bit. This is was one of the arguments I used to make for compassion. So there's another, I'm not a pro basketball fan, but there's another team um, apparently by the name of Golden State Warriors who are not half bad, I'm told. Um, they have four core values in their organization. One is competition, which makes sense, right? As a pro NBA franchise, you'd think that that would be a core value. Um, fun is their second core value. Makes sense, like it's you know winning, having fun together. Third, mindfulness, and fourth, compassion. So I used to say, what do I used to ask people to do a, when I was trying to explain why why an organization would focus on compassion. I used to say, "Well, let's do a little thought experiment. What if you get um, experts from the field of neuroscience, psychology? You get medical doctors in a room. 
uh, let's say we're doing a, like we're hosting a conference. How do you live a richer life? How do you be happier? We get medical doctors, psychologists, brain scientists in a room. You get representatives from all the major religions, and you get the Golden State Warriors in a room. What's the one thing they could all agree on in order to live a, a richer, more meaningful life? And I, I would argue, as part of this experiment, that they would all agree on one thing, compassion. So that's just another another vector into this. So again, it makes sense. Like it makes sense in certain contexts. I don't know why. Um, and this is changing, but I don't know why. Like people get weirded out when we start talking about compassion or kindness or even love um, in the workplace. So I'll come back to that at a tactical level. Messi, can you talk about what associates? Is it a is it a, a cultural thing? Is it um, a tactical program that they engage in as part of the onboarding process? Just yes. what does that look like? Yeah, so I didn't actually, I'm aware that I didn't actually answer your question in my um, long-winded uh, attempt. So at a very basic level, um, new hires come in and they automatically get enrolled in this messy program. It's a core part of our culture. It's a core part of our strategy uh, for growth because our strategy for growth is really get and keep really great people um, and help them progress in their career and then they will take care of clients and et cetera, et cetera. So this is part of our strategy to get and keep really good talent. And uh, so new people come in, they get automatically enrolled in the program. That looks like they've got to spend a bunch of time with me. Starts out with um, a, like a four hour workshop that they get and then they go through the program in these small groups. And that's an interesting part of the program to create these like little, um, little pods of people going through the program together. And it just makes, um, just makes for a great conversation, really real conversation that people bring up very personal issues a lot of times because this is, we didn't say it's better financial advisor training or anything like that, it's better human training and people are just as likely to bring up personal stories as they are professional stories. And just the trust and respect it creates among colleagues to go through this training in these small groups, is it's just enormous. Yeah, that, so how does that vulnerability and authenticity allow those, allow those professionals to be better? I can see the benefit of them being stronger teammates can you talk about how it makes them better as financial advisors and working with clients? Well, I can tell you one. I think there's lots of ways. I think the one that comes to mind most immediately is the, the, the vulnerability and authenticity is part of a culture of feedback. So um, there's, a, there's a brilliant psychologist um, by the name of Robert Keegan who I, I love his stuff. He wrote a book called Everybody's Culture, Everyone's Culture, um, wrote a book called Immunity to Change. Anyway, his basic premise is that most people are doing two jobs in an organization. One is they're doing their job job, and the other thing they're doing is trying to like protect themselves, play it safe, look good, not make mistakes, um, you know, not take too many risks, be the expert, these sorts of things. And he said, look, if you can, if you can just be yourself, feel, be in an environment where it's psychologically safe, 
where you can be yourself, you can be authentic. Um, then you can just focus on your job job. You don't have to worry about like managing what you think about me and trying to look good. I can take risks, I can learn, I can admit that I, 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 um, I made a mistake or I can say I don't know or I can um, say, hey, how did that go? How did you think that went? And give me feedback. And so that's what we're trying to create is a, is a culture of psychological safety so people can get really get better. So to more specifically to your question, I know there's teams that are really, really regular about after every client meeting, they're doing feedback. And there's feedback all the time. It's a culture of continuous improvement. Uh, we ask our clients for feedback. They're very vulnerable in, in those conversations. So I think it really comes down to, to feedback and learning because you know, that's the, the first step in, learn, in the learning process is admitting you don't know. Well, admitting you don't know is a vulnerable thing um, and can be, especially in a, a field where you're expected to be super competent right. and technically expert. Yeah, I mean, how does it create an environment where I would I would assume that it creates an environment that is very accepting of failure, right? So there's this movement of embrace failure, take risks, and that's sometimes difficult within larger organizations. Maybe it's because of this psychological safety, this second career that they need, but how does how does the messy program and just the culture that's been created are there specific examples that you can point to where failure is embraced or failure is accepted or failure is promoted or, or you enable associates or colleagues or what's the, what's the phrase that you use? Col I mean colleagues, yeah, they're Brighton Jones colleagues. employees, but I, we, you know, we're, we're one, we have a one team culture, so I consider them my teammates. Okay. So like I would say my teammates. Okay. So is there anything that you can point to specifically, an example that you can point to specifically that says, we allow people to take risks, fail, learn, raise their hand, and be able actually celebrate failure. Are there any examples that you have there? Or in our culture of continuous growth and continuous improvement, we are constantly changing our processes and procedures in a in a way that gets better. And that that's going to mean that at some level everyone's always going to feel a little bit uncomfortable because we're never, like, things just don't happen the same year after year. Um, we're, we're constantly trying to, to change and improve, and, uh, you know, we will um, we'll change uh, team configurations, service offerings, upgrade technology, um, constant improvement, and that just is going to put people in a position where they're never going to feel totally expert, and they're going to have to say, hey, I don't know, or this isn't working, or whatever. The other thing, though, is that um, uh, we have this very entrepreneurial-type culture where uh, so much of what we've done in this organization, so many of those improvements have come from people raising their hands or taking risks, um, saying, hey, that's, like, that's not my job, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and... Um, it wasn't what they were hired for, but everyone's kind of leaning in and looking for ways to improve and, and try new things. Um, so there's, I think there's like the whole, I think the whole culture of continuous growth and continuous 
continuous improvement depends upon people getting out of their comforts, either being forced out of their comfort zones by the by, you know, the business needs, or taking themselves out of their comfort zones in order to get to the next level or get or find a different role in the organization or continue to add value. So I want to back up. So you've been at Brighton Jones for three and a half years ish. Now I was hired in a learning and development role, kind of an internal coaching role and training role. And we, um, then we, after about six months, came up with the Messy program and then did that full-time. I have been doing that full-time since, but there was a turning point about two years ago where, again, we landed on compassion as kind of the why for the messy program and it and that the compassion aligned with our corporate DNA that was very philanthropic from the beginning John and Charles had like always been super involved in the communities and giving back and that was an ethos that just got promoted as we've grown and so when we landed on compassion as a core value a couple of years ago and it made sense to like reframe everything under that kind of um uh, umbrella of compassion. So can you can you talk about the title, Director of Compassion, and maybe go back to the first discussion. So was the was Director of Compassion created by you? Was it created by the firm? Yeah, so um, as part of the, the very first messy program that we ran um, had about a two-hour session on compassion. And um, I'll, I'll never forget this day. The first, we had a pilot group of employees that were going through the first Messy program. And I remember setting up in the conference room and had videos on the science of compassion. Everything we try to do is we try to, everything we do, we try to make it evidence-based and science-based so that we're, you know, we're just on solid footing. Um, but I remember I had some videos on the science of compassion and then, um, I remember sitting there before like the session started and this the, the group of my teammates came in thinking to myself like this is crazy town like you're at like here I am like I remember thinking I'm I, I was so nervous I'm about to invite a group and I think Charles I know John was in that group John Jones and I think Charles Brighton our two co-CEOs and I'm like I can't believe and I've I've grew up in financial services so I couldn't actually believe that I was sitting here at this wealth management firm leading this training program and we were about to spend two hours on compassion in the workplace. Um, so it was with no small amount of trepidation that we, we went down this road, but it, it landed with people. Like it was like that was, that ended up being the, everybody's favorite session and it was like the light bulb went off for me and a bunch of people like, oh, this is it. And I don't expect it to be it. Like lots of companies have mindfulness programs and they, they, they get into mindfulness for lots of different reasons, just like individuals get into mindfulness for different reasons. But for us, it just landed. And I think it is because we could see that tie to our mission statement and what we ultimately wanted um, and want, want to do and are doing for clients and also um, we could see the tie to kind of our DNA, as I mentioned, as a company that gives back and philanthropy, and then just the 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 personal kind of component of what it just means 
So the, the science of compassion, if you look into this, is really, really compelling. Um, so that's what I would say to anybody who gives me that kind of like, look, like what's this woo-woo compassion? I'm like, there's some seriously hard science behind the benefits of compassion. And I'd invite anyone to, to look into that. I, so why Crazy Town? Well, I, I'm assuming you had, so you built the program or that you, you were leading the program. Um, well, I, 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 wanna, I know where I, I know where you're. I think I know where you're going. I want to kind of get into that moment. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the majority of people in our industry have some version of that mentality. Uh, I think there's a shift, there's a turn, and there's there's a lot of um, there's a formulaic equation behind why they should embrace what you're doing. It, selfishly, if they want to be a better financial advisor, not even a better person, I want to be a more successful financial advisor, they should embrace the principles of compassion and mindfulness and meditation. Right? So they're, I think despite that, this crazy town is going to be uh, felled by most. Right? So, so, so can you back up to Corey before the two hours? And yeah, I mean, I think I think I have this conversation a lot. I think I think a lot of people like I'm just imag as you ask that question, I'm imagining like a principal at an RIA firm that might be listening to this, and maybe they've got a team, and they're thinking like I buy it, I get it. We want to do. I want to bring mindfulness into my organization. I want to bring more compassion, or any of these. You know, I want to drive an initiative to bring this into my organization. And I think that what a lot of people face in that moment, a lot of leaders or anyone who's leading this type of initiative, is this idea that like, who am I to lead this? Right? Like, I'm no expert, and and so. To me, it was crazy town, not because it didn't like make sense intellectually. It was crazy town because I felt like an imposter. Because it's like, so I'll just share the story. When I told my, first of all, I didn't tell my wife I was becoming the director of Compassion. She saw it on an email a couple <laughs> weeks later in the signature line. And so I shared with her an email. And then she happened to read down. And she's like, what's this director of Compassion? And she had a very, she had the response which I was predicting, which is why I didn't tell her. She said, first of all, as a question along the lines of what you asked, like, what is that? What does that even mean? And so I explained it to her as best I could at the time. And I, I mean, I, I knew even less about it then than I know now. But second, after I told her, she said, well, what the hell makes you qualified to be the director of cash? Because of course she sees me you know, I, I don't always show up, A, I don't always show up at work as the most compassionate guy, but I definitely don't show up at home as the most compassionate guy on the planet. So I think we all have these little voices in our head that think we have to be experts in something before we can go out into the world and promote that thing. Like, I got to go out, I got to get a PhD, or I got to get a certification, or I got to get a master's degree, I got to amass years and years of experience in order to 
lead an initiative on XYZ. That's one way to do it, and there's lots of people do it. I tend to take the more difficult route, which is like, I think this is really cool. Why don't we do it? And then we'll figure it out as we go. And thankfully, I work for a company, John Jones is very much of the same mindset, like action creates clarity. But, but I constantly am just running around with this imposter syndrome, like I'm the, like, like, we had this today. I mean, I walked in here for this podcast. I mean, it was such a poignant moment. Like, we walk in for this podcast, and I we took a lift over here. I'm with one of my colleagues here today, and as we took a lift over, I walk into this room where we're recording this, and I realize I mindlessly left my very important journal in the lift. And so, you know, it, it was like a shit show. Can I say that in here? Yeah. So it was a shit show, like, in here really quickly. So, A, mindlessly leave my notebook in the lift, and then, like, I just was, like, in a, a complete panic as I was trying to, like, race out of here. And we, we have this saying at Brighton Jones, this below-the-line moment, which means it's just, like, my emotions got the better. I mean, I was, like, probably the least mindful, least emotionally and social intelligent guy for about two minutes until I figured out where my notebook was. And um, like, that's just like, that's just the journey. And, um, you know, it, 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 I have to sort of live with the fact that I call myself the director of compassion. I lead mindfulness, but I'm certainly not any, you know, not God's gift to any of these things. It's merely just a, like it just come from a place of belief in their importance for me and other people. And so what I ended up telling my wife and I tell everybody is it's totally aspirational. Like the, the compassion thing, like director of compassion, like I have more to learn about compassion than most people probably. And so, but I still like, I think it's something really powerful about just hanging out your shingle and living with the tension between where you wanna be and where you are today. And like there's, and, you know, I think a lot of people, I just invite, I guess I would say it this way, I just invite more people to just be more overt about that tension because we live in this kind of expert culture. And I think very few things are done like that. I think most things are done by people just putting themselves out there. You probably don't know anything about this, Sam. <laughs> just putting themselves out there and saying, this is where I want to be, and then living with the, like, this tension between like this gap skill gap or knowledge gap and like that's okay right. it's very, it's actually really powerful yeah it's just getting over that initial barrier right it's that it's so you had said something about it's not binary right it's a, it's an evolutionary um journey where i think most people think they have to get to this specific stage and when they get to whatever that aspirational point is now they can put themselves out and in a lot of ways, that aspirational point is not achievable. Right, yeah. You're never going to, yeah, there's always going to be somebody who knows more than you, has more experience than you. And if you're waiting till you're like, okay, when, when, I, when I have the PhD, when I feel like I know everything there is about this to know, then I can put it on my business card, then I can be a consultant, then I can talk to people about it, then I can write a book or whatever. It's like Alan Watts, um, Life is Music. You heard? Have you seen that before? I have not seen that, but I'm super yeah. curious. I know who Alan Watts is, of yeah. course. You need to check it out. Okay. He talks about 
the parallel between life and music, and he says that if music were like life, then all we would wait to hear or we would anticipate is the last note of the song. And what we forget, what we so he talks about just how you go from elementary school to middle school to high school to college, you get a diploma, then you go to master's, and then you get this job, and then you get this title, and then suddenly you get there and you're like, that's it? That's, that's what I was striving for. And he said, the problem is that we're constantly reaching for something, but we neglect to realize that it's like music. Like the notes throughout life play, have harmony. They move you and they provide emotion, they provide energy. Um, so I'm doing a disservice to, to Alan Watts, but it's what's really cool about it is that um, the South Park guys, so Trey Parker and whoever the other guy is, they made a video. So Alan Watts records it, it's on YouTube. He records it, it's his voice speaking, and then they make a, like a, it's not the South Park characters, but it's cartoon characters that are South Park-like. Nice. I will check it out. You should put it on the show notes for the podcast. I'll put it on podcast. the show notes. Yes, I'll put it on the show notes. So what's a typical reaction when you say you're the director of Compassion? It's, 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 I mean, there is a sort of initial disbelief, um, but that passes quickly and people lean in. I mean, remember when I was the director of learning and development, people would like, I'd say that and they'd lean out. Like you just know, you notice that when you talk to, like, like if you're really aware of other people's reactions in conversations and look for it, it's like, are people leaning in or are they leaning out when you say something? And, and I just notice that people lean in a little bit more when you say that. They're, in other words, they're curious. So it leads to more questions, which is, which is awesome. And, and I don't like making small talk with people. So it usually leads, it usually leads to a good place. And what I really like about it is like people start telling me stuff that they wouldn't tell me otherwise, which I love because it's like we get pat like I hate news, sports, and weather. So it's like that's to me I call all small talk news, sports, and weather. And so I can go up to someone at a cocktail party or whatever, or networking events. I'm the director of Compassion, and almost instantly we're in a real conversation. And to me that's really that's really beautiful. So let's talk about Corey before. Brian Jones. So just what's your background? Just go way, way back. You can start back as far as you want, industry or just life. Yeah, I guess um, considered myself a, a cross-country ski racer. And then uh, when it came, came time to get a real job, I got hired by uh, the branch manager at a regional brokerage firm in Bozeman, Montana, who happened to also be a ski racer and sort of liked you know, this was this was back. This was regional. This was brokerage. So this was you know late '90s brokerage, which was like you know they'll hire pretty much anyone. That's probably not giving anyone enough credit, but let's just say the bar to hi- hiring bar for new brokers is is pretty low. And it's like if they think you can sell and work hard, then they're willing to take a risk on you. They put you through training, um, and then you're. You get an office and a phone book and a declining salary and good luck. So that's how I started because a, a, a really great branch manager took a risk on me. So I started building a book. So I was client advising and, and selling stocks and moved to manage money and, and like that did that whole thing. Um, then got out of the 
kind of client-facing roles and got more into management and leadership roles. And then about seven years ago, took this big shift. Um, and the big shift was a move towards coaching. Um, when I got into leadership roles, I was, a, I was kind of a, this is probably even overstating it, but the way I've said it is a big fish in a small pond. Um, which is to say I had a role where, which I call executive leadership, which is like you lead people who lead people. So I, I got to a point in my career where nothing that I produced was going to be just through my own abilities. As I like to say, like I, I wasn't pulling any of the levers. Everything I needed to accomplish was going to get done through people who reported to me and then the people who reported to them. And that, that, that's a really interesting, I've noticed through coaching leaders, like there's some really interesting ref, uh, inflection points in people's careers. One super interesting inflection point is when someone goes like from just being a sole contributor to a manager. And that's, you know, that's a point that like trips a lot of people up. Another point that trips a lot of people up is where they're just move into that pure executive leadership role where it's like teams of teams that you're leading. Anyway, I was really struggling and needed to find a new way of operating because it wasn't going to be through my own intelligence, good looks, and charm, and hard work that things were going to get done. Um, and so I landed on this coach as leader metaphor because it, as near as I could tell, good leaders who were really good in those roles were good coaches. They were coaching people. They weren't telling them what to do. So I started delving into coaching, lost my job, so I hung up, hung up a shingle as a coach, started coaching, and then quickly got to the point where I needed actual, I needed to give my coaching clients things they could do every day to get better. And that maybe comes back to my ski racing background, which was like, if I met a coaching client that wanted to increase their empathy, which it was a lot, actually, because I look at a lot of the feedback that my cl coaching clients were getting, and there, a lot of them were financial services. So when I started my coaching business, working with a lot of financial, uh, lots, a lot of advisors, a lot of um, principals at financial advisory firms, and the feedback I was getting about from their teams, because we do 360 feedback and sort of stuff, or the self-reported feedback is, you're awesome with clients, but you suck leading your team. Like, you're really good with clients. You really take care of your clients, but you treat your people. Like, if there's one thing what I would say within financial services that I see over and over and over again is this client-first mentality. So you get, like, clients are first, and then the, and then the, peop the employees of the firm are second-class citizens. And I think that's so backwards. I think you can look at a lot of business models where, where basically, and, and I think reason I really like Brighton Jones is we get this right. It's like you get and keep really good people. You take care of them. They will take care of your clients. And so we get that backwards. So anyway, a lot of the people I was working with, advisors and leaders, really lacked empathy. Um, and so in noticing that, again, I go back to like, okay, well, I, I'm lacking empathy. And I, I saw this in myself and certainly in my relationship with my wife. And I was like, all right, how can I train at this? If I'm an athlete, if I'm a ski racer or a basketball player, I know what I need to do. There's things I can do every day. I can get books. I can find coaches. I can, I can watch videos, and I can do something every day to get better. And to me, that was like there's got to be something for empathy. There's got to be something for these other social skills or soft skills that I want to develop. And 
that was mindfulness and it, it landed in my lap. Where did you start? What was the, that was kind of the insight that you had. Where was, where was the first action step? Um, the first action step was uh, uh, I never miss an opportunity to promote uh, Pema Chodron, who's an author. She's a Buddhist nun, um, and she is from the Shambhala tradition, Tibetan Buddhist, but super down-to-earth woman, um, Western woman, um, written a ton of great books. I stumbled upon her books about the time I was like really deep into my coaching business, and it was all right for me it was all right there like oh yeah here's a she's giving me practices better human practices ways to become a better human being things I could do every day and that resonates with me like so now every morning I get up and I meditate because that's how I get better and prior to that you it was a it's a hope strategy it's like any you know it's like if somebody says we all know emotional and social intelligence are super important you know, they, what's the old saying? You get hired for your technical skills or your IQ, and then you get promoted through your EQ. We all know how important these things are, but very, very few people have a determined, intentional way of training it every day. So it's a hope strategy. So you hope you're going to become more empathic. You hope you're going to become a better listener. I, I keep bringing up listening because I think there's there's so many different layers of listening, and I think that... Um, financial advisor, if there's one thing financial advisors, I th- if I had to say as a general rule, the two things that finance, financial advisors could use more than anything is listening and empathy. And I combine those into, into one practice that we do called empathic listening. Like there's just one thing everyone could get better at, it's that. Um, but there's a way to train these things and very few people do. And I think they're just hoping they'll develop over time. So earlier you said the baggage associated with mindfulness. Um, and so for your journey through, your entry point was through through a spiritual leader or through someone who would be associated with probably religion or faith. Um, and I think that has, I think that's part of the baggage concept that people think that mindfulness means a shift in faith or a shift in spirituality um can you just talk about that baggage and now that you're on the other side of this even though i think your entry point correct me if i'm wrong your entry point was through the spiritual door if you will um can you can you paint some color yeah and i i actually missed a step because i was actually introduced to mindfulness uh, through a graduate program I was in, and so that was very secular. So then I, so that's the s- step I skipped. Then that, as I started to look into mindfulness more, I, I, I ran into Pema Chodron. But my first introduction was um, very secular, like, and I think I think that's what won me over. Actually, I think that I wouldn't have been, I would, I don't think I would have been as receptive. I, maybe not receptive at all had it been presented in any kind of spiritual or faith-based way or associated with any particular religion. It was, um, it was purely secular and scientific, science-based, which I think is super important. 
I think that, um, and you look at the pro, like the programs that have, and why mindfulness has really taken off in the West is I think there's been um, efforts made to do the, you know, do the, have the science that's backing it and evidence, and then presenting everything sec in a secular way. And I, I think it is. I mean, I think that it's not like it's not like whitewash or something it's not like oh we're just like it's not a bait and switch thing it's not like oh we're gonna like it's really religion but we're not gonna leave we're gonna leave it out of that and just call it something else it's not that i mean you take these practices in and of themselves and there's nothing um there's nothing remotely religious or faith-based about them that's that's why i use the term brain you know or um, brain training or mind training or mental training um just because it's like people get that visual visualization um would be a great example of that are there uh are there one or two proof points from a scientific perspective that you would point to for a skeptic I'd give them. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say there's um, there's tons of research out there. It can almost overwhelming. I'd say the one go-to book on this is called Altered Traits. Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence in the late '90s, and a very famous neuroscientist by the name of Richie Davidson, Richard Davidson, at the University of Wisconsin Madison, uh, they teamed up and they they combed over all the research done on mindfulness and they kind of create a summary in there and they look at all the studies and, and they're very clear that some of the studies are like not very well done um, but they say these are not well they say in that book very clearly this is what we know about mindfulness this is what we don't know about mindfulness and this is what we can't say because there's a lot of hype around mindfulness right now and they're you know they're very pro mindfulness and they do a lot to promote mindfulness but they're also both scientists and they want to make sure that they're not we're not over promising say we but that the, the mindfulness community is not over promising the results or saying you know oh it's science based and then have the science be like fairly fluff. bogus or fluff yeah. yeah which can happen I you had talked about um, imposter syndrome um, can you can you expand on the responsibility of being the director of compassion at an institution and just like how is is there any other director of compassion anywhere? Are you the only? I know at one point you were the sole. I think I I think I actually was the only one um, at one point. Um, I had a I had a friend that is runs a. A consulting company, and they've—it's called the Potential Project, and um, they've been consulting orga global organizations in mindfulness and compassion practices for the last decade. So very well ahead of this curve, very well versed. Work in like they have clients in a lot of different countries, twenty or some countries, maybe more. And he was the one who said, hey, look, I think you're the only one. Like, I've been doing this now for 10 years at a lot of companies, and I think you're the only one. That being said, LinkedIn now has a director of mindfulness and compassion programs full-time. They tapped one of their very senior leaders um, to do this full-time. And if, if, you're, if your listeners want to dig deeper and look at Jeff Weiner 
who is the CEO of LinkedIn, he espouses compassionate leadership, and he's spoken quite a bit on the subject. And um, I think what happened is as he went out more and more talking about compassionate leadership, then I think he needed to pay that off. And so he he did what John Jones did. He said, if this is important, we're gonna put we're gonna make it somebody's job to make sure that we're figuring out. It's not clear what compassion looks like in an organization. So back to your question about responsibility. Um, it's like we think that somehow compassion means you're being soft. Like you, I was thinking back to your question about failure. Like a lot of people think that, oh, it's a compassionate organization. Oh, it's okay to fail, Sam. Like no big deal. Um, it's going to be okay. And a lot of people associate compassion with softness. Like, oh, like whatever, you know. Um, and it's not that. Like, there's a hard edge to compassion, which is kind of what it looks like at Brighton Jones, which is like the compassionate thing to do is not say, like, the compassionate thing is to understand that we all make mistakes and we fail, but the compassionate thing is not to, like, leave you there and let, and like, and not help you get better. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the most difficult thing can do, could do is to tell somebody, hey, you know, Sam, like, I think that you really missed on that opportunity. And, like, here's the ways that I think you could have done better. Um, So, or, you know, or, like, this is not a good fit for you. This job or this organization is not a good fit for you. So let's figure out a good fit for you. It doesn't just mean anything goes. So I guess all that to say, like, it's not clear what compassion looks like in an organization. And and I think, though, we do have this idea that Mm -hmm. compassion and being competitive in business are mutually exclusive. And I think that's just because we of our old mental models around compassion that thinks it's all just like, hey, whatever goes is fine. And then this old notion of competition, which is zero-sum competition, which is like, I win, you lose. Well, there's another, there's a whole other way of thinking about compassion that is not just airy-fairy, fluffy, rainbows and unicorns. And there's a whole other way of thinking about competition, which is like, if you and I are competing, Sam, it's not like we can compete in a way that we're each pushing each other to get better, not compete in a way that I win and you lose. And so I think if you take these new views on compassion and competition, you can see that they totally, like it wouldn't be compassionate for me to like see that you not give your best in, in at work or in a client presentation or on this podcast and, and not say something. Like if I'm, if I'm really have your back, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. We're going to have this relationship where we can be really honest with each other. And if you think about it that way, it, it totally works with, being competitive because we're, inst- we're just each trying to get be the best versions of ourselves we can right. and, I, and you, I, I need you to hold me accountable to being the best version of myself I can and you need me to hold you accountable and that sometimes means like when I'm not being the best version of myself the last thing I want to hear is that but I need to hear it right. like you know what the F, Corey? Like, that was so, like we say before, you know, below the line. And, like, yeah. when I'm below the line, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear how I hurt someone's feelings or how I messed up that presentation or how I, um, you know, did any one of the numbers. I don't want to hear that stuff because my ego, but I need to hear it. It's better for me. And the more I can get over my own ego um, in oh. a safe way, in a, in a in psych- psychologically safe environment, the better I'm going to become. Right. So, so there's an intersection 
and if you can expand on this, it would be helpful, the intersection between compassion and courage. Because right, I think it's, you're raising a really important point about the fluffiness of that's associated with the word compassion. And it, there's, so what you're talking about right there, if someone's not showing up, they're not doing what they should be doing, or they're not being even remotely close to the best version of themselves, they're not even being neutral, they're, they're, they're on a declining scale, there's some element of courage required to ask why, and then, so how does compassion, so let's just bring it back to the question, how does compassion intersect with courage? Well, I go back to the root word, the root of courage, which is, I think, the French word core, heart, I'm probably, I'm, I know very little French, but I think if you look back to the root of the word courage, it has to do with heart. So I don't think of courage as much as like bravery, like, you know, climb out of the foxhole and, you know, go shoot the enemy, like just being brave. I think of courage as wholeheartedness, which goes back to being vulnerable and being authentic. And, and what's the biggest barrier to compassion? Or like, let's just say you're suffering, right? Let's just say that you're really struggling. Like the, the biggest barrier to me coming in and saying, how's it going, Sam, or having that conversation is my own discomfort with that situation. I want to shield myself. Um, I don't want to come in with an open heart. I want to protect myself, protect my ego. Like, I want to ask you how you're doing, but I don't really want to know how you're doing because what if you tell me, you know, like what's really going on and it's bad news or we get into this awkward conversation. And so um, to me, courage means open-heartedness, which is to me compassion. You're moving in the world in a way that is open-hearted. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, when you have your heart out there and you're open, you're going to get hurt. It's going to be painful. And but um, it's it also is like the only way to like live full, wholeheartedly or authentically is risk being hurt, risk difficulty, right. take risks. Right, right. Yeah, I heard um, I heard Brene Brown say recently that bravery means you have to accept that you're going to get your ass kicked. Right. So being brave and like showing up is one thing but just coming to the understanding that if you're actually going to be brave and demonstrate courage that means you're putting yourself out you're taking a risk without clarity on how the story's going to end and by putting yourself out there the probability of getting your ass kicked is a hundred percent right because if if it's if it's too comfortable if it's too safe you're not really demonstrating courage. You're not really being that brave. You're kind of, it's a false sense of courage. It's a false sense of bravery. For sure. And I think that just bringing the bat, that back full circle to mindfulness, you can train in getting, you can train in getting more courageous. Mindfulness training, I think, could be viewed as getting better and better at sitting with the discomfort of always being a little bit out over your skis or being a little more courageous. I mean, not to get sort of too philosophical here, but if you think about it, like that's life. Like what do, we, what do any of us know for certain? I love this Pema Chodron, you know, she talks about the fundamental ambiguity of being human. Like we're all, we're all very, and we're all in a very precarious position here. 
and as I said at Team Week, uh, our Team Week a couple weeks ago, no one's getting out of here alive. We're, we're, um, yeah, <laughs> we're in a small room right now. It always makes people a little nervous when I say no one's getting, but I mean that in like the you know, existential way. <laughs> But, but like we're, we're vulnerable creatures in an entropic universe that's not designed for our safety and comfort. And so at some level, like we're not safe. And like there is this ambiguity and this uncertain of just being a human being on this planet. And the more disrupt, the more change we go through, the more our worlds get disruptive, the more vulnerable and exposed we feel and so I think so much of mindfulness is just getting comfortable with the ambiguity of being a human or getting comfortable with the ambiguity of change or getting comfortable with just that unsettled feeling of I'm out over my skis or I'm doing something that's risky and so our our habitual response is to always move to safety always move to certainty move away from discomfort and that doesn't serve us. What serves us is doing the counter habitual thing is lean in, right? Lean into the discomfort, lean into the uncertainty, lean into the risk. And, but you have to train that. You have to get like exposure therapy. You have to get better and better at just that falling feeling. John Jones and Charles Brighton get it. They don't, they're not asking for me to prove the ROI on the messy program. Uh, they know from their both the, from their firsthand experiences, and also from the anecdotes they and the stories they hear from our people that it's working, and they're they're able to like connect the dots without hard metrics, and that's what we've run on so far is just the anecdotes, like people coming up to me and saying, um, I'll just use myself for example, like I'm there's no doubt I'm less of an asshole than I was. Four years ago, through because of the mindfulness and this training, and like, you know, but other people are like, you know, I'm I'm less reactive, I'm more patient, I'm a better listener. My friends tell me I'm happier. My wife says, you know, I'm a you know whatever. Like I like that's the fuel for me personally, and what drives the program. That being said, like I want to get hard metrics. I want to figure out how to measure this stuff because I want to promote it. And I think that that's the, you know, data is the currency of our culture and our time. And there's different ways to do that. I'm, I'm like trying to pay attention to the ways that people are doing it. Um, some companies that are doing mindfulness are experimenting with like taking people's blood mm-hmm. um, and seeing like stress markers in blood. I think there's things that you and I have talked about a little bit with just like heart rate variability and like there's a, like there's all these there's there's actually an intersection between technology and mindfulness that's really interesting and kind of in the realm of biofeedback and there's different assessments you can do um, so i think that in or really in order to advance this work in organizations i think we're going to have to get better at the data and there's some companies that are that are doing this um, we just haven't and yeah. it's something we need to do uh, compassion and mindfulness are often delivered in joint fashion, peanut butter and jelly-like. So can you define those two? Yeah, probably a better question would be, why are they always together when one seems like the output and one seems like the body of work? Um, just help me under, can you deconstruct? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll try. Um, a lot of the people that I encounter 
will say, like, I've been really, really vocal about making sure that we call out compassion and a lot of people that I talk to that are doing this work in organizations that are more under the heading of mindfulness, they say, yeah, 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 well, compassion's baked in there. Like, it just, it, it goes together. And I do think that, I do think that becoming more compassionate is a natural outcome of mindfulness. Um, the reason I, and I'll get back to your question, hopefully, more specifically, but the reason I call them out is because you can, so my, so definition, mindfulness, I like the definitive definition of mindfulness that, that is basically non-judgmental, full awareness of this present moment. So you can think of it as being like right here, right now, mind's not wandering, but not just right here, right now, but right here, right now with an open, curious, non-judgmental attitude. Um, it's this, this idea of this, I'm able to have this third party objective perspective of what's going on here. Like I see this stuff happening to me, but I'm not caught up in it. So that's mindfulness. In that definition, it says nothing about compassion, right? I could be, and one famous author on mindfulness uses the very unsavory metaphor of, I, of that I could be a sniper and I could train in mindfulness and that would help me get better at my job. So that's why I call out compassion because for us, compassion is for the sake of what? Why are you becoming why are you training in mindfulness in order to what? For the sake of what? And for us, it's the sake of becoming more compassionate, which is, you know, just again, another way to say better human being. Um, uh, and, and historically, like if you look at like the tradition, like where the lineage is from these practices, they were always linked. I like the peanut butter and jelly. The, the more traditional way of saying that is like they're two wings of the same bird. But I like the peanut butter and jelly. That's a little more approachable. Uh, so they were they were always like linked, and uh, and the my fear is that now with the popularity of mindfulness and companies using mindfulness as a productivity tool, or um, for you know stress reduction tool, like that's all great. I'm all for productivity and I'm all for stress reduction and these things. But you can miss, in my view, you can miss the bigger picture, which is the compassion. And so there's a whole kind of. Um, pathway of of mindfulness that leads to compassion to sum it up succinctly is um i guess it goes back to this notion of comfort and discomfort at its most basic level which is through mindfulness i'm able to um i get into it so let's just use the example of a walk in here i lost my notebook and i like i'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off for five minutes until I find my notebook. Like that, in that moment, I'm being overrun by emotions. So I'm having an emotional reaction to having lost my notebook. It happened in the split second I noticed it wasn't there. It's like, in, you know, it's like everyone who's like misplaced their wallet or their credit card knows this. It's like that instant sinking, like, oh shit. And suddenly, you know, Emotions are taking over, and you're having an emotional reaction. And the minute you start to have emotional reaction, you're not thinking clearly. Um, so 
mindfulness training allows you to react less emotionally and respond more wisely. And if you think about when I encounter, now you take that out, so I'm losing wallets or I'm losing notebooks or whatever else and sort of these you know, little things that cause these emotional reactions where I go out of here and we get into traffic, somebody cuts me off, I'm going to have all these little episodes. Mindfulness will help me get less and less reactive and be able to respond more rationally or more wisely in these circumstances. Um, but what if I have an emotional reaction to someone else's pain? or someone else's suffering. Well, if, if I go out on the street and I see somebody suffering, like a lot of us, if we even tune in, even, most of us won't even tune into that, myself included. Most of the time I'll be too busy or I'll look the other way. I won't lean into this discomfort. But the reason we don't is not because we don't feel their pain and it's empathy. It makes us like profoundly uncomfortable to see someone else's suffering. And we shut down. We're overcome with emotions. Um, whether we're aware of it or not, like we lean out from that. And so the more and more I can have a, a rational response, a calm response to that situation, the more compassionate I'll be because we're hardwired for compassion. It's our most basic human instinct. We think, oh, people are at their core, they're selfish, they're self-interested in self-preservation. It doesn't happen. You look at kids, you look at, you know, there's all sorts of situations that confound psychologists, like, is there such a thing as true, true altruism? I think there is. I think at our most basic core, we're compassionate, empathic individuals, we're social, we want to take care of each other. But when we're emotionally triggered, we're selfish, we're egocentric, we're, we're trying to look out for ourselves. So... I don't know if that, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it. I tried to yeah. say it as succinctly as, as I could. But, but if you think about a calm and compassionate response as our best, we call it the ninja move at Brighton Jones. Like you're in a difficult situation. The ninja move is the, most, is the wisest, most compassionate thing you can do in a difficult situation. And like that's, that's the standard. Anything less than the standard is because you're probably reacting out of your own uh, emotional reaction because it's it's you know it's it's due to past trauma because it reminds you of something that happened in the past or it's a habit or you know there's some emotional trigger or there's some story you're telling yourself in your head. So, at our optimal, we're all wise and compassionate people at our core, and if we're less than that, it's because we're reacting as opposed to responding from our heart, from an open-hearted, open mind. So wisdom and compassion, those are the, that's the peanut butter in the jelly. Love it. Love it. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you hear something like 800 to 1,000 or 1,400 words in your head per minute. And in emotional-driven situations where you lose your wallet, those words can overwhelm and be powerful in driving your response and your behavior, right? So is, is, it would it be fair to say that mindfulness is the exercise and compassion is the output or one of the potential avenues of output? Yeah, I think... I, th I mean, I'm going back to the sniper thing, right? So there are ways you can use mindfulness as an exercise to get 
less responsive, less reactive, control your emotions, let the executive functions take form, but if the, that can still be used yeah. in the wrong way. I think it goes back to intention. Yeah, for sure. In a bad way, right? Yeah. I think it, 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 it goes back to intention, like why, why are you training in mindfulness? Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. I actually happen to believe that if you, if that person was, tr that sniper, I don't know, that's a very unsavory metaphor. There's probably a better one. But um, I actually happen to believe that if somebody trained in mindfulness, that they probably would be looking for a new job because I don't. I think that very natural outcome. I think it. I think it happens. I think if you start training in mindfulness, you start getting less reactive and more responsive. Then your natural wisdom and your natural compassion start to come out more and more. So it, I. I find it hard to be, it, it, unbelievable that someone could get very far down the mindfulness path. That's part of the reason I don't get too hung up on the compassion thing because it's like if somebody's like, even if they're in it for the wrong reasons and they're still diligently practicing mindfulness, I think that they will find themselves being wiser, more compassionate, or as I like to say, less less of an asshole. Yeah. yeah, so compassion is a byproduct of the exercise regardless. I think so. It may just be from a one to a two instead of a 10 to 100, but they're going to, the byproduct is going to be some. I think so. Wisdom, wisdom and compassion, insight and compassion. And which goes to, I think, kind of the, you, the thrust of this podcast, which is this, um, I think when you say the, you know, left brain, right brain, I think what you mean is wisdom. And I think, I think um, mindfulness makes us wiser. And I think there's, you know, some evidence that suggests that it makes it us more creative as well. Um, but what we don't, that's the influence on, quote, the mind or the brain. But the other part of that is the heart. And I love this saying, and I think, like, I heard it actually from Jeff Weiner, but uh, he's quoting someone else. He says, you know, wisdom without compassion is ruthlessness, and compassion without wisdom is folly. So these two things go together. And it's kind of, I think of it as the head and the heart. So what's, what's wisdom and what's, what's compassion? So what, what would, what would, 2008 Corey think about 2018 Corey gosh 2008 Corey I think he would just be and this is such a different like it's an interesting question like I'm on such a different trajectory because I was basically a product manager and a re regional broker dealer um not doing anything along these lines, but I, I guess he'd be like, good job, man. Like, you really, like, put it out there. Um, you crazy, you know, crazy, but, like, awesome that it worked out, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting to think of it that way, but I think, I think it would go, like, that was bold. Mm -hmm. That was bold. That was a like that arc from 10 years ago to today was pretty pretty bold but I'm in such a better place um, I, I like that's the kind of the thrust of what I do now is like I really really I had two conversations in the last 24 hours with people who are looking at making career changes 
and I don't know what it is about our time or maybe it's the vintage I'm part of like 47 or whatever like you know like people are looking for more than just a job it's not just the millennials like everybody's looking for their work to mean something and have a positive impact and that's creating a lot of like introspection and soul searching and wondering like what am I doing and all these existential crises and stuff like that and I think mindfulness can help with that like a, a practice a, a practice of like really taking inventory getting to know yourself and taking inventory of yourself can be helpful um, but I guess like the the I guess the, the, what the 2018 Corey would tell the 2008 Corey is yeah. start meditating. Like, I know you don't believe it. Just do it. Um, if I could convince, if I could, uh, that's what's, that what, what's, what blows me away is discovering both emotional and social intelligence and mindfulness at the ripe old age of like 42 or whenever it was I discovered it. Um, like, that's what blew me away. It's like, why didn't I hear about this when I was in high school or college? Why wasn't I training in this 20, 30 years ago when um, it would have been super helpful to me? I just look back at all the mistakes. I'm like, talk about them, like, just dumb people mistakes because I just didn't have the emotional and social intelligence. I was react, reacting emotionally in situations that required calm wisdom and compassion are there so if you were trying to trying to encourage 2008 Corey to meditate what 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 would be part of that conversation I think I would say do it every day for a year commit to doing it every day for a year don't worry about results just do it and then like See what see what happens at the end of the year. year. Probably takes less than a year, but um, that's actually how I started. Like I, I just committed to doing it for a year, and um, and then at some point late in that year, I was like, wow, this is actually working. I think what happens. I think, and I've told you this, Sam. Which I think meditation is really really difficult to get people to buy into. It's got a few things that are not going for it. Um, one is. Um, most people don't have a bunch of extra time right. on their hands. Two is, um, like, it more than anything else you do in life, there don't seem to be any immediate benefits. And then I, when I say immediate, I mean sometimes three, six months. Like, you can be sitting there meditating every day going, like, I don't know if this is working. There's really, to me, no way to know it's working, and you don't often see the results. So it's just that's, like, really confounding kind of our western sensibilities and then third is sometimes it's just plain uncomfortable to just sit there with your thoughts and there's some interesting studies around this where they put people in waiting rooms um and you know they told them they were waiting for something else but they give this option option to just sort of sit and wait or shock themselves and a surprisingly high percentage of people would rather like give them administer themselves an electric shock than be alone with their thoughts and I think that's the real reason. Everyone will say mindfulness is difficult because, like, I don't have time or I don't know if it's working. Like, that's all super real. I think the real essence of it is, like, we just don't have good relationships with ourselves. And, like, we're, we're a little bit scared of being, and I think f 
for good reason in a lot of reason in a lot of cases we're really sort of afraid to be alone with our thoughts we find it very very uncomfortable and i think that's just a sign of the times unfortunately well the trend is we're being filled with plenty of distractions right i mean there's no shortage of distractions in on your in your pocket at any given moment where you can just pull out your phone and I think three hours worth of your life. On yeah, I think there's a. I think there's like an interesting cause and effect here, though. I think that. I think we invite, we love distraction. I mean, I think we. I mean, distraction. It goes back to that comfort versus discomfort. I mean, as as human beings, we want to be comfortable, and there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but a lot of things are uncomfortable, and so. We can learn to be, be with the discomfort. We can learn to um, hold discomfort and then in learning to hold that discomfort, be able to react or, excuse me, respond with, wisdom, with calm, wisdom, and compassion when we feel the discomfort. Um, we can learn and get better at that or we can continue to run away from the discomfort and that's where the distractions come in. I mean, I think that like us as a society, continually inventing ways to distract ourselves is a function. It's not the other way around. I don't think it's like, oh yeah, we've been inventing this, these different ways of distracting ourselves, therefore we're not able to... There's, it's, there's a feedback loop that way. Right. But human beings are very, very good at distracting ourselves. And we distract ourselves with, with drugs, alcohol, shopping, TV, entertainment, phones, um, None of which is, is bad in and of itself. Like these are like I'm all for alcohol. Well, I am. Like I love wine. Like there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine. I like I love my phone. Entertainment's awesome. Um, except for except small talk. Small talk. Yeah, except small talk. But but um, but it's what with what intention am I using the phone? Am I is it every time I feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, do I reach for my phone? to distract myself or I come home and I'm a little edgy rather than like learning what's, what's that edginess of what's your inspiration what's my inspiration like I'm inspired by this notion that uh, <clears throat> I can become a better person and I can help other people become better people like I think the world needs it I think we're I think there's just so much suffering in the world and so much, and there's so many problems, and they're mostly human-created. And so um, I'm motivated by the idea that at our core, humans are wise and compassionate people, and that we can get better at this whole job of being human beings and get along with each other, and that um, the place that starts is with me, and so that's what I'm trying to do.